behind that locked door. Shalom! Thank you for joining us for the sermon from the second Sunday of Easter, April 24th, 2022, from Christ Church, Jerusalem. History records accounts of Jewish disciples standing by and dying with their martyred rabbis. Reverend David Pelegi reminds us that most of Jesus' students abandoned their teacher at his death. Were they hiding from Jesus in the upper room? After the resurrection, Jesus enters their locked room, not with justified anger, but with words of peace and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls us from our locked rooms to trust in the relationship we have with him and courageously imitate our holy God. Um, so the first reading is from the book of Acts, and I thought it was a second reading, <laughs> um, chapter 5, beginning to read at verse 27. The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teaching this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Please rise with me for the hearing of the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ as it's recorded in St. John, the 20th chapter. When the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jewish leaders, 
Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm now sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where uh, the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand, put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray. So, Father in heaven, we ask that... Uh, as we encounter your word, that uh, these stories and these verses will not be so familiar that they will not speak to us in a fresh way. Lord, we've heard these verses so many times before, but we pray that your Holy Spirit will apply them to us. We ask that we'll be encouraged and blessed, Lord, that will be convicted and challenged as we read these things, as we once again remind ourselves of how you appeared to your disciples on Easter morning. And we do ask these things, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, so that he may be glorified and honored in our midst. Amen. like to um, continue, you might say, where we started last week <clears throat> on Easter. And um, as you may recall, I think I mentioned that it's sometimes very difficult to preach Easter or to preach the resurrection because I'm, at least from a personal perspective, 
Um, there are some things that uh, trouble me deeply, one of which is that uh, the resurrection becomes something we think about only at funerals or one day of the year, the, the day that we call Easter. And what further troubles me is that sometimes we understand that our, our salvation or you might say our relationship with the Lord all centers around an event, or two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. <clears throat> but uh, what we tried to emphasize last week is that while in no way we demean or to make small or to, ex to ignore the death of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection. Those two events don't save us. It's Jesus himself who saves us. We're saved by his entire life. And this, of course, we find in the book of Romans chapter five. We're saved by his preexistent life. We're saved by the incarnation. We're saved by his obedience up to the age of 30, 30 years old or so. We're saved by his teaching, his miracles, his, his death, resurrection, his ascension, his continual intercession for us, and ultimately his return, right? All of those things save us. And you know, I think it goes a little further in that uh, so often, yes, we've only understood salvation or we've cheapened salvation to be something that happens after we die. And people will walk around and they'll say, are you saved? And what they're really asking is, where are, you, where are you going to spend eternity? And of course, I think from the passage that we'll look at in a moment and other passages in John's gospel, if we only see salvation in such a limited way, we as a community and as individuals, we're missing a lot. In fact, it it actually is a tragedy. Um, you know, the um, Matthew's gospel tells us that uh, when the angel appears to Mary, the angel says, you know, his name is going to be Yeshua because he will save his people from his sins. And sometimes we stop there. But then... The, the text goes on to tell us, the angel goes on to say that his name will also be Emmanuel, God with us, right? The purpose of the death of Jesus and the purpose of his resurrection isn't simply that we go to heaven when we die, but that we'll come into union or relationship with them, yes, in this life. And that union and that relationship of God with us continues after we die. 
And so, and we can say this, but sometimes we're so stuck, you might say, in the old, the old way of thinking that it's really hard for us, many of us, to change our habits or to change our perspective and to see things in a wider and a richer and even a deeper way. And you know that <clears throat> salvation is not merely some transaction, but it's, it's a transformation. Because as we're in union or in relationship or living intimately with God the Father, yes, through the Son, right, God begins to change us and mature us and bring us into uh, bring us into a place bring us into a place of holiness and as we emphasized last week it's not only that transformation isn't simply about us as individuals but the transformation is about a community right that after the resurrection after Jesus breaks the power of sin and defeats death and the fear of death he creates a community, right? And that community, or the community that um, he creates is one in the process of being transformed. And it's not a community, not a, we talk about community in our day and age in a very loose way. We have this community and an online community and we have the Macintosh community or the Apple community or the iPhone community or we have the, um, uh, the feminist community, whatever, uh, whatever communities we, we may create. But of course, the scripture, when it uh, when, and again, as we mentioned last week, when it talks about community, the understanding is that community um, is a group of people that have, you might, that have a destiny, that have a direction, that have a purpose, all of which, you know, the orientation all comes from God himself. And that God does desire, or God does seek uh, to dwell in a people. Again, not only individuals, but in a people. And the story of the Bible is God <clears throat> in search of a people yet who will say yes to him and allow him to indwell in a community. Why is it that God seeks a, seeks a people, whether it's Adam and Eve, who he tells to be plentiful and to multiply, or Abraham, the nation of Israel, and even the church, is that perhaps it's because God himself lives in a community, right? That, uh, that uh, God is, um, dwells with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And they seek, you might say, to replicate, yes, the, their community, their relationship uh, in a people here below. Whatever we, however we understand it, yes, salvation is social. It's not simply, <clears throat> not simply about us. And the question is, if 
if the Lord seeks a community and that community is in the process of being transformed, then what, is, what should the community look like? And I think the passage today is really helpful for us. It was helpful 2,000 years ago, and uh, seeing that human beings haven't changed very much, it should be helpful for us, because I think it will give us a better understanding of what the shape of uh, our communal life should look like, and where and how we get an identity. So, starting in, starting in 20, we have, so early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, and of course those of us, those of you who perhaps know John's gospel, um, the, um, the, idea here in verse 1 is pointing to the creation, right? Just as God started to create on the first day of the week, God is going to recreate, um, and this recreation will involve um, the establishment uh, of a new community. So on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Yes, so... Then we, we go to 19, sorry, we go to um, not, yeah, 19. So on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders. So Jesus walks into a room and he finds his disciples to be fearful. And further, he stands amongst them and he says, peace. Well, he says in this passage, he's going to extend his peace three times. Why are the disciples afraid? Well, they're afraid of, they've locked the doors in fear of these Jewish leaders who at this point aren't after them. They're not being uh, hunted down or they're not being um, persecuted. It happens a little bit later in the book of Acts. So in a way, they're, 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 they're fearful of something that either hasn't happened or it's non-existent at the moment. And perhaps they're also fearful of Jesus because, you know, as disciples, they failed him in a, in a very, very big and essential way. Because in the culture of discipleship, first century discipleship, as I mentioned to a few of you, um, I think two days ago, you never ever deserted your teacher. And the relationship one would have with a teacher in the first century Jewish world, it was to be that uh, your, your uh, relationship with him would be closer and more devoted than you would have even with your parents. And this in a society where honoring one's parents was considered to be extremely important. And so artists, the disciples of Jesus abandon him, deny him. In Peter's case, he's gonna kind of quit the movement as we see in the next chapter and return to his former life. And so Jesus 
comes and he says, peace. And I think it's more than just a greeting. Maybe we remember the words of Jesus a few chapters before when he says to the disciples who are fearful uh, at the Last Supper or during the Last Discourse, Jesus says, my peace I give you, not as the world gives you. Not as the world gives you. So it's more than just a, more than just a uh, customary shalom. Right? So Jesus comes into a group of fearful people. He speaks peace. And not only does he speak peace, maybe we haven't noticed before that Jesus doesn't walk into the room and he doesn't start wagging his finger and saying, well, I told you so. I told you what I told, I predicted that you would let me down. And by the way, you owe me an apology. And uh, we're not going forward, we're not going forward with this movement uh, unless you apologize. Or, you know, maybe you can prove it to me. I'll give you a, a two-year trial period. You know, and if you pass the test after failing, we'll let you back in somehow. There is no recrimination, right? There is no bitterness on the part of Jesus. Some people have never noticed that Jesus actually practices what he preaches. Yes? The very things that he tells us to do that he himself has modeled for us. He doesn't even fire them, get new, new apostles. In today's corporate world, they would have been gone or they would have been canceled. Yes. So there's peace for those who are fearful. And then what is the response of the disciples? The response of the um, their response is that um, they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. They respond surely with gratitude, but they respond with joy. And despite their failures, despite their inconsistency, despite the lack of their maturity, Jesus is going to give them the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in this case is not so that they can have goosebumps or have three-hour praise and worship sessions. The giving of the Holy Spirit is for the purpose of mission. So as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And of course, Jesus breathes into them. And here we have the most, you might say, if you want to talk about union, or you want to talk about intimacy and relationship, here Jesus breathes his life into those less than perfect, less than holy, less than mature disciples. And he does it through 
the giving of, he does it through the giving of the Holy Spirit. And I think all of that, hopefully, should characterize what our community looks like. Should not be a community that lives in fear, that locks the door. Should not be a community um, that uh, practices recrimination or a refusal to forgive or not wanting to give people a second or a third chance, canceling, cutting people off from relationship, refusing to connect. Should be a community, we should be a community that uh, is full of joy And we should be a community that with the power of the Spirit unlocks the door and goes into the world. Now, just think about it for a moment. Why would anyone want to join this community? Because that's what is on offer. It's not simply individual salvation. But of course, we're joining the body of Jesus, which is the church. So who wants to join a church that's fearful? Fearful of the world. Fearful of what other people might think about us. <clears throat> fearful of the future. So feel fearful that we, <clears throat> excuse me, we lock the door. And we huddle. And a community that doesn't know peace, not only peace with outsiders, but peace in, uh, within its own community. And surely after the, um, you might say, the test that the Lord gave us with Corona, and indeed it was a test. I'm not sure what else it was, but it certainly exposed um, some things in the body of the Messiah or the body of Christ that was um, unsavory and things that brought uh, disgrace or desecration to the name of Jesus. The way people canceled each other or engaged in hatred and bitterness over the vaccine. The way the community is being torn apart in many countries by politics and there's a hardening of people on the left and people on the right. And we have a politics of really of hatred now and spite, even in the community. You know, we all know about churches who break up because of you know, different opinions over Donald Trump. And what a tragedy that is. Who wants to join such a community? Who would want to join a community in which, where there is no joy? Shouldn't it be that joy is the thing that defines us? The joy of being in union together, 
and as individuals with the risen Jesus, I think these are the things that should be the shape of the community. And how is that possible? Well, we'll skip the story of Doubting Thomas. I'm sure he'll come back to us next year. But let's go to the end of the passage. It says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, right? So the signs that we read about in John's gospel, they're there to point, yes, to the real and true nature of Jesus. And John then goes on to say, goes on to say <clears throat> but these are not, but these are written that you may believe. I'm not sure we get the shock here, but John's, the, the gospel writer, is telling a story, telling a story, telling a story, yes, as if it was a play or a movie. And then all of a sudden, the actors in the play or the chief storyteller now turns to us and addresses us, those who are in the audience, those of us who are listening, or those of us who, you know. And um, he's not writing for them, he writes for us, and he says, these are written that you may believe, or in Greek, that you may keep believing right, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. We may have life in his name. I think all of this somehow is the key, yes, to giving our community an identity. And further, to helping us have the right perspective so that we can live in peace with each other whenever possible that we don't have to live in fear, and that we can always return to joy, even when things disappoint us. And so, these things are written that we may believe. Believe what? So in our tradition, the Western tradition at least, when we talk about belief, immediately we think of something intellectual. Like, I believe Elvis is dead. I do. I believe human beings walked on the moon. I believe the earth is round. By the way, all these things are in doubt or in question today. Yes? Yes, it's an intellectual ascent. Yes? And we can and should believe that Jesus is the Messiah, because that's what the Gospel of John is trying to tell us, but that he's even more than the Messiah, right? That he comes from the Father, that he is in, you might say, fellowship with the Father, or relationship with the Father, and that his relationship is such, right, that actually he, he, he is divine. And here, doctrine or teaching is important. It's not something that we need to minimize. 
Because how can somebody less than the Son of God or God himself be the one who gives life, divine life, eternal life? It's simply not possible. And I'm convinced that John, yes, understands the term Son of God in the way that it comes out of the mouth of of Thomas, right? My Lord and my God. So it's essential. But there's something much more and much deeper here. And that is simply that John never uses the word faith. John doesn't really like nouns. He likes verbs. John's like that old British rock group who had that hit song, Let's See Action. Yes, John wants verbs. And John, for John, belief is trusting into someone or trusting into something. And by the way, if you're trusting in somebody, it's not a transaction. Yes, salvation so often is seen, I accepted Jesus, therefore I'm saved. Brothers and sisters, that is a wonderful start. That's a great beginning, but that's not the end. And actually, if, tr- if the word belief is best translated trust, that tells me, should tell us, that we're talking about a relationship. Yes, not some, you might say, legal transaction uh, that, ha- that happens when we accept Jesus or something that we do on a one-time basis. So it's interesting, but actually we can go deeper than that because trusting or believing, sorry, in John's gospel also is the same as abiding. And it's used interchangeable with abiding. It's used interchangeably actually with allegiance and even obedience. It is a very, very nuanced, yes, and beautiful, um, many, a number of, a number of definitions. So if we have this trust, or if we have this obedience, if we have um, an allegiance, and this leads to eternal life, or this gives us eternal life, which again, according to John in chapter, in chapter 17, eternal life is nothing more than being in rela- intimate relationship with God and his son. And that intimacy and that relationship continues after we die. Then what does this do for us? We ha- if we indeed have this trust, surely we can take risks. We can take risks and forgive each other, just as Christ has forgiven us. We can take risks and give people a second chance in our community. We can take risks and be joyful, yes, despite the circumstances that uh, might be going swirling on or swirling around us. We can take risks and trust the Lord 
As Andrew Brunson spoke about several nights ago, trust the Lord even when we can't be sure of the outcome. We can trust the Lord in the midst of suffering or difficulty or persecution. Whatever it may be, we can take that risk. And I think for us in the day and age in which we live, I think what's perhaps um, most, um, I wouldn't say it's lacking, but I would say what is most necessary for us as a community was reflected in the story that we found in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and John are brought before the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, um, not the entire Jewish people and, and not the Pharisees, because you may want to, you may have noticed that actually the Pharisees uh, get them off the hook. But Peter and John, ultimately, they have the courage to say, we have to obey God rather than men. And what what needs to shape our community is not just risk in the relationships that we have with each other, but a risk vis-a-vis the outside world. And that risk or that risky living may require us at times to say no and may require us at times to say, I'm not going to go along. We need courage. We need courage. We need the courage, yes, to fulfill the injunction that we find in the book of Exodus. Don't follow a multitude to do evil. Now, today is Armenian Holocaust Day. Yes, it's a day that the Armenian community around the world uh, commemorates the genocide of the Armenian people, which, by the way, didn't actually start in 1915. It started in 1894 and continued until 1923. And along with Armenians, Uh, Millions of Greek Christians and Syrian Christians were also killed. Now, how is it possible for genocide to happen virtually in every case? Every case history will show that genocide is carried out by a minority of people with the majority being bystanders and doing nothing. When we go to Poland, we go to Poland, we um, read a book, or read passages from a book called Ordinary Men. Ordinary Men by Christopher Browning. And uh, this is about 500 policemen who were too old for military service, but they were sent to Poland to work behind the lines of the German army. And these 500 men were, in their 40s, many of them. They were not members of the Nazi party. They uh, grew up in the city of Hamburg 
under the influence of communist and socialist propaganda. So they were um, spoon-fed for years with, uh, you know, anti-Nazi ideology. And these 500 guys are sent to Poland. And again, they're not paid up members of the Nazi party. They know better. Many of them were conservative or evangelical Christians. And they had part-time jobs in the police. When they get to Poland, they're told that their job is going to be, they're going to go to isolated villages in southern Poland, and they're going to round up Jewish communities and shoot them in the back of the head. And most of these ordinary men who know better go along with it. And at the end of the war, when some of them were put on trial, or even some of them were interviewed, you know what they said? We knew it was wrong, but we didn't want to stand out. We didn't want to let other people down. We, you know, were afraid, you know, to be different. And so they committed genocide. I think it was Kant who said that the greatest evil in the world is the desire, yeah, to fit in, right? The desire to be like everybody else and not to be different. Well, these guys were just like everybody else. By the way, 50, about 50 of the 500 had enough courage to say, no, we're not going to do this. We're not going to participate in this. And guess what happened to them? Nothing. Nothing. They were laughed at. But they didn't suffer any consequences for doing such a thing. Now that's an extreme example. And most of us, thankfully, will never be in such a position. But we are, yes, very often, and you might say less compromising places, where people might make jokes, uh, anti-Semitic jokes, and laugh. And we kind of laugh along with them because, you know, after all, we don't want to stick out or we don't want to be a holy roller or, you know, the conduct of way, the ways that uh, uh, people behave. Maybe it's a dishonest behavior or lack of integrity. And uh, very often we'll say, we'll just keep quiet. And sometimes that might be the wise thing to do. But it's not the wise thing to do if we do it because of fear. We have a huge, huge amount of cultural pressure on us like never before. And that cultural pressure says conform, conform, conform. You be like us. We believe in diversity, they say. But you've got to be just, just like us. You really can't be diverse. And if, you're, if, you're, if you want to be different, we're going to, to persecute you. And much of the body of Christ is afraid. 
or afraid of what people might say about us on Facebook or Instagram, or we're afraid of being canceled, or whatever it may be. So we all keep a low profile. But in Acts chapter 5, Peter and John, right, being part of a community that's being transformed, they have the courage to say no. They do it respectfully. They're not arrogant. They're not rude. They're not rebellious or defiant. They simply say, we can't go along with you. We can't obey the law in this case. And by the way, in Europe after the war, they did lots of surveys. And they asked people, you know, why in places like Holland or Poland, Italy, they took the same survey in different countries. Actually, I think it was the U.S. Army who did this. Why didn't, what did you do? do to oppose the German occupation. And if you didn't do anything, why not? And of course, most people didn't do anything. And you know what their big reason for not doing so? It was against the law. It was against the law. And sometimes the law is wicked and evil. And I'm not preaching sedition. But sometimes we have to say no. Sometimes. And when that day comes, may we have the courage to do so. May we do it peacefully. May we do it joyfully. May we do it without hatred and recrimination. As if we're some kind of crusade. Self-appointed crusade. But indeed, may we have the courage. It doesn't come instantly. You may notice a few years later, even the, the, the mighty Peter, the hero of Acts chapter 5, you know, kind of shrinks back in the face of internal criticism, you know, in his own community about, you know, about food issues. But we need to pray and ask the Lord to strengthen our courage, just as we need our faith strengthened. Yes, hopefully we grow in faith and become more confident. We have more trust. Yes. But we also need to make sure that uh, the same is true with courage, so that we will not shrink back at the time of testing or trial, and that we can be counted worthy, even if it brings persecution. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we indeed want to be the community which your Son dwells richly by the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we want to enjoy the benefits and the fruits and the blessings of eternal life, of being saved and being in union with you. But Lord, in the, the world in which we live, whether it's the Islamic world or the atheistic Western world. Lord, we pray that you'll strengthen us. And Lord, we pray that um, you will encourage us and that we will encourage one another to live in a way that is indeed courageous. 
Lord, help us not to be afraid and not to lock ourselves in an upper room and to barricade the door. At this time, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.